misunderstanding and misteachings that come out in regards to uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, uh, this is not the, the title of the lesson. The title is, is Radical Rule because that's really what our, our picture is about. But if I put that up there, I didn't want you to think I bait and switched you and that we're not talking about Gog and Magog. And, and, and we are and uh, going to look at that. And as you get your Bibles over to Ezekiel 38, and we're going to spend our time there, one of the, the tendencies that has happened in studying uh, these two chapters and this prophecy is uh, there is this uh, desire of interpreters to always interpret it in light of current events. And that goes way on back that uh, I, I read that it has been interpreted that Gog and Magog were the Goths of the fourth century. Uh, they were the wars of the Crusades. They were the Holy Roman Empire. They were the Pope. They were the Turks. Uh, the Schofield Reference Bible is the one that made it very popular that it was a reference to Russia. And so there's always been some kind of current event that people go, oh, that must be Gog and Magog. And that's what we've been, been looking at. So what we want to do is, is come into this text and, and primarily look at some clarity. What is Ezekiel prophesying? But one of the exciting things about this text is that it has a magnificent message of comfort and, and courage for us. And in studying this, I wish I'd come to this understanding a long time ago uh, in seeing this because it is such a picture of hope for the people of God throughout all the ages. Well, let's introduce our, our, our Gog and Magog. That's what the first 16 verses of Ezekiel 38 do. I want you to notice that in Ezekiel 38 and verse 2, you just have this description, set your face toward Gog the of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So what I want you to just kind of get is when you say Gog, you're apparently talking about a ruler, and he is from the land of Magog, that's his region, and that's what, what that's doing. I'm going to try my best tonight to use the word the Lord so that you are not confused between God and Gog because that is going to sound really similar. <laughs> and so I'm going to try really hard to not say God and say the Lord so that we know which ones we're talking about here uh, as we go through this. Now, one of the troubles that immediately comes out is not only is do we not read about a person named Gog from the land of Magog in scriptures, that never happens in history either. And that's what I think has led to a lot of interpreters trying to always look forward to, well, who's going to be the Gog person and this land of Magog and where are they going to come from is because we don't see it anywhere in the past. And we'll talk more about that in, in a few moments. But I want you to notice some interesting pictures. Verse 3, the Lord says regarding Gog what he's going to do to them. He says there, uh, in verses 3 and 4, first verse 3, I'm against you. Verse 4, I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws and bring you out. And all of your army and horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, the great host to all of them, buckler and shield, wielding sword. The reason why I want you to observe that is that sounds exactly like how the Assyrian Empire conquered people. They conquered nations and peoples and we even have uh, archaeological reliefs that we have found that they would put the hooks 
in the mouth or in the nose of their captives and drag them out of their land. And you're getting a picture here in verse four of God saying, I'm going to do a reversal. I'm going to do to you what you've you've done to others. And so it's an interesting picture that it almost sounds like Assyria is being dealt with because God is already describing here. The Lord is already describing here that he wants to do essentially to them what they have done to others. And you'll notice with the description, you get a sense that this is being described of a world power and he has the support of other nations. You have seven other nations listed there in verses five and six that, that are laid out there. And I think seven is somewhat interesting that as you come to the end of Ezekiel, seven is going to be used a lot. And we should see that this Gog and Magog imagery has some kind of symbolism to it. It is referring to something and this these titles are being used in a way to symbolically refer to whoever this ruler is and whatever this world power is. In verses 8 through 16, what you see in this section is that Gog of Magog is going to gather all of his troops and supporting nations and come up and attack the people of God. From verse 10, you see that you have the carrying off of spoil and plunder and uh, against these these quiet people who were dwelling securely, but now they're no longer doing that. And you jump down to verse 15 where it says, And you will come out of your place of the utmost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army, and you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land. <clears throat> That the nations may know me when through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So I want you to notice that first you have a picture of this world power along with other nations. And they are described as all coming up against the people of God. They are now going to come up against them. And if we think about our context of Ezekiel, remember we have been reading about God promising that he's going to take the people out of Babylonian captivity and put them back on their land and they're going to dwell peacefully and securely. And I've spent many chapters talking about the, the, the picture of what that's pointing to uh, if New Testament terminology. Now, here is a, a, a picture of this Gog and Magog are now going to come up against uh, the, the, this, the, the people of God. And notice that you have at the end of verse 16 when it says, and I will bring you against my land. Now, I want you to really see that in verse 16 is that the Lord says, I'm the one that's going to do this. So here's Gog and Magog gathering up their nations. They're going to come up against my people. And in the middle of verse 16, the Lord is saying in the latter days, I'm going to bring you against the nations. And that's going to vindicate my holiness against for everybody to see. So I'm going to bring you up against the, the people of Israel, my people, and all the world is going to understand this. This is really the big thrust of what chapter 38 is about. Now, in talking about this section, we, the big question, of course, is, well, who is this? Who, who is this referring to? What nation? What world power? What is being referred to here? And we get some important details to explain this in verses 17 through 23. Notice very carefully verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, 
Are you he of whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them? That is an important description about this world ruler and nation. Notice that the Lord says, that the other prophets before Ezekiel have spoken about you. Now, the reason why that's curious, as I already just told you, we can't go anywhere in the scriptures and read of a King Gog who came from the land of Magog. And yet, here is the Lord saying, uh, is this you who have spoken about by my, all my previous prophets? All right, well, immediately we have to start thinking about, well, what were the previous prophets talking about that the Lord would be pointing to, to this, this picture? I would observe for you, just even at this point, though, we cannot look to some future world power and say, well, what we are doing is waiting for China or waiting for Russia to do some particular act. And the reason why is because the former prophets before Ezekiel did not speak about in their prophecies about Russia and China. And here is a prophecy that is saying that by the Lord, my other prophets spoke about you. So it can't be talking about something that is outside of their complete existence and outside of their understanding. And I want you to notice another picture that's given. If you jump down to verse 23, in verse 23 of chapter 38, it says, here's the Lord speaking. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. And then they will know that I am the Lord. I want you to notice that you have a statement here and it's made repeatedly throughout these two chapters where the Lord says, I am raising up Gog and Magog and then I'm going to destroy it. And that's going to show my greatness before all the other nations. He says it in chapter 38, verse 16. He says it again in chapter 39 and verse 21. I'm going to bring you up against my people and then I'm going to destroy you so that all the nations will know that I am faithful and I keep my holy name. And I think that's important as, as trying to understand who this is, because then this means it can't be some end of the world moment because the whole purpose is to get all of the other nations who observe this thing that happens to all understand who the Lord is. If it's the end of the world, it's too late for that, if that's what this is pointing to. Instead, it must be something more practical so that when the Lord does it, other nations will look at it and go, oh, uh, okay, that, that was the Lord's doing, now I understand. So we're already kind of knocking down some things that it cannot be because of because of these pictures. Now, as I want you to think about, and I hope maybe you're getting your mind around this question, what did the former prophets say that would fit this Gog and Magog prophecy? What in the past that you have of other prophets like Isaiah, what have they proclaimed that now you could come in Ezekiel's day and the Lord would say, well, the other prophets talked about this. This is who I've been pointing to. This is what I've been saying all along. And I submit to you that we could go to so many of the prophets and see these two facets that these former prophets always put their finger on. They always speak about how the Lord is going to raise up a world power to judge his own people. 
Isaiah does that. Jeremiah speaks of that. Amos does that. Hosea does that. All of the prophets of God all come and proclaim to Israel, here's what God is going to do to you. Because you've sinned, he's going to raise up a a world power and they're going to come and destroy you. But there's always something else that those prophets also say after that. They also then turn around and say, but after that judgment, God's wrath is going to be ignited and he's going to judge that world power. That is always the balance of what the prophets keep saying. All right, Israel sinned and the Lord's going to raise up a nation and judge you. But after that judging, the Lord is going to be jealous for his people, fight on behalf of his people and go ahead and vindicate his his holiness. And so I'll put just a few of the prophets that you could run to and see that those very points. Uh, Habakkuk does the same thing as, as well. So what I think we're already beginning to have crystallized before us in terms of these prophecies is that this Gog and Magog picture would symbolically represent any world king and world power nation that arises against the Lord's people. Now, I want to show you that I think Revelation confirms that, and then I'm going to show you how the other prophets confirm that, and then I'm going to show you how the New Testament confirms that, all right? So you got your seatbelt on, this is where we're going with, with all of this. Let's go to Revelation, because amazingly, sometimes we think the Revel- book of Revelation makes things harder. I'm going to make it real easy for you right here. Revelation 20 and verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number like the sand of the sea. I want you to notice that Gog and Magog are defined in the book of of Revelation right there. What's Gog and Magog? The nations. The nations that stand against the people of God. Here is this symbol that's being used right here in the book of Revelation. Satan's going to be allowed to rouse world nations again, bring them up against God's people. That'll be Sunday class. One of these days we'll get to chapter 20. We'll, we'll explore all that. Nine, here's your ad, 9.30 a.m. Sunday mornings we're going through the book of Revelation. We'll go through those details. But I just want you to see the definition right there. Gog and Magog here are being used as world powers and world nations. Now, Hold that in your mind, because when you come now to Ezekiel 39, I want you to see that what we have here is essentially a description of how God is going to accomplish his victory. In chapter 39, God starts to explain that he's bringing judgments on on the nations and he's going to defend his his holy name. Verse seven and my holy name will be made known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And in fact, verses 9 and 10, I think, are particularly fascinating images because you have the Lord going out and fighting on behalf of his people. And it says in verse 9, then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and buckler, bow and arrows, uh, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years so that they will not need to take wood out of the fields or cut down any of the forest, for they will make the fires of the wet with their weapons. They will seize the spoil of those who despoiled them and plundered those who plundered them, declares 
the Lord God. Here is the Lord saying, I'm going to destroy Gog and Magog to such a significant extent that you're not even going to go fight. They're going to get wiped out so bad that you're going to gather all of their supplies and, and their spoils and their, and their armor and their weapons. And you're going to just use them for fire because you don't have to worry about any uh, of the enemies. In fact, that's what, how he keeps going in verses 11 through 20 when he describes them being struck down. I'm going to strike down these wicked nations. Some vivid imagery in verses 17 through 20 where you see a picture of the birds being prophesied to who were supposed to come and eat the flesh and drink the blood of this fallen nation. Now to us, that's horribly graphic, but if you would kind of visualize what warfare looked like in ancient times, and if you catastrophically wiped out a nation so that their dead bodies were strewn all over the battlefield, what do you think all the birds did? That's the imagery is Gog and Magog are going to lose so badly that their bodies are strewn everywhere and the birds are going to gorge themselves on the flesh. By the way, hold that in your mind. Revelation 19 does the same thing. We'll get there. We won't do that now either. But that's also borrowed as an image again. Notice, though, the reason for all of this. What is the Lord doing with this whole Gog and Magog thing? What are you doing? Look at verse 23 of chapter 39. And the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions and hid my face from them. Now, I hope that you, something resonates about that description, because here God is saying, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be faithful to my word, and I'm going to show the nations why Israel went into captivity. Now, doesn't that sound Ezekiel relevant? That's what happened in Ezekiel's day. Ezekiel and Israel are in captivity because they disobeyed God. And notice that you're getting a, a, a picture here that the Lord is trying to say, and I'm going to vindicate my name so that the nations will know that it wasn't Babylon who did this, but I did it because you disobeyed. I'm the reason you went into captivity. Verse 23, where he says, I hid my face from them and gave them over to the hand of their adversaries. So I want you to notice that Ezekiel even sounds like he's talking about something in the present time as well. And yet we already just looked at Revelation. There's a future thing over there, too. So what I want us to observe is, is first of all, that Gog and Magog not only have a, a future meaning, Revelation 20, but it already existed in Ezekiel's day. So that the Lord can say, I used them to put Israel in captivity. I think that's fascinating, the, the picture that's given here in this section. So it's not only something future, but something Ezekiel is already experiencing. So let me sum up the idea this way. That Gog and Magog is not referring to this one particular future nation. Let's all read our 
you know, internet browsers and newspapers and watch the news. And as soon as a war flares up, everybody goes, there it is. We finally, that's not referring to one particular, we're waiting for this one guy to come along and do this. But rather, it is a symbol to refer to all of the evil powers and nations and rulers that rise up against the Lord and against his people. Now, let me show you that with some prophets and some New Testament language. First of all, let's use Micah, because I think we'd be surprised that Micah, how similar he sounds to the Gog and Magog imagery. Micah chapter 4, verse 11, now many nations are assembled against you. So notice, same idea. Nations are rising up against Israel. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be defiled and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make your hooves bronze. I will beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Notice similar picture in Micah's day. The world nations are rising up against the Lord's people. But the Lord says, guess what? I'm actually the one doing that. And the reason I'm doing it is so that I can destroy that world nation. He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. I'm going to thresh them. They think they're rising up against me and my people. Oh, they've got it so wrong. I'm actually using them to actually be destroyed. That's what Micah is picturing. By the way, don't have time for it. But you know what's two sentences later? Micah 5 verse 2. Oh, Bethlehem. This is the Bethlehem text. This is Messianic text time right here. Just two sentences later is where we come into, we're coming right into chapter 5 where that prophecy is made. This is looking forward again to something about what the Lord is, is going to do. All right. Hold that in mind. Let me bring you to the end of the book. Come back to Ezekiel 39 and then we'll do the New Testament part. Ezekiel 39 and verse 25. Thus says the Lord God. Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all their treachery that they practice against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from the enemy's lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. All right, I want you to see some of the pictures here. The Lord says, so here's what's happening. I'm going to restore the fortunes of my people. We see that in so many prophecies, this restoration image. The Lord is going to come, be joined to his people, restore blessings, restore covenant, restore kingdom. I'm going to bring my people back to me. I'm going to gather them from among the nations. What was it, two, two Sunday nights ago? Go listen to that one. I talked about the gathering in of the people of God and how the Lord was going to do that. Verse 29 is really important. Notice he says that the relationship will be restored. Verse 29, 
And I will not hide my face from them anymore. Now, here's the key. Notice, when will that happen? The rest of the sentence is, when I pour out my spirit on the house of Israel. When are we pointing to? Isn't it interesting that in Acts 2, when the spirit falls... And the Apostle Peter and the Apostles get up and they say, hey, this is what the prophets were talking about, that you can be restored into God's kingdom and you can have restored blessings and God has come for his people and you can enjoy the forgiveness of sins and you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What are we talking about? What the prophets were saying about this restoration time. They're saying these things would be available. These events would ultimately happen when the spirit was poured out. When the spirit comes, the Lord's radical rule will begin and he is going to destroy Gog and Magog. Okay? I'll say that one again. When the Spirit comes, this is what Ezekiel's pointing out to. When the Spirit comes, the Lord's going to establish his radical rule, establish his throne, establish his kingship, and will destroy Gog and Magog. And the cross then is a a summary picture of that. The cross is, is the big picture of the victory of Christ over world powers, over nations, over thrones, over kingdoms. The cross stands as the monument of God's victory subjugating the world and putting these things under his feet. And so Gog and Magog are symbolic terms that represent any foe. Throughout time that stand against the Lord and his people. And so I would say if you were standing in the days of Hosea, your Gog and Magog image would have been Assyria. And it's interesting that I showed you there in verses three and four that that's almost what it sounded like he was talking to with the hooks. They were unique in that. Other nations didn't take captive people that way, but Assyria did. If you're standing in Ezekiel's day, who's the Gog and Magog? Babylon is. They're the enemies of God's people. They're the ones coming up against the Lord's plan and the Lord's people. If you roll a little bit further down, Persia becomes an enemy of God's people as the people come back and begin to rebuild and they stand in that symbol. Greece does the same thing. Rome does the same thing. Even Jerusalem will stand against the Lord's people as we were just reading about this morning's Bible class as they have woes pronounced against them. Now, let me show you how Peter confirms this, and then I'll show you how Daniel confirms this, and then I'll try to put a tight bow on all of this and bring it, bring it all together. I want you to listen in Peter's second sermon what he said. Remember, Peter and John have been arrested, and they've been threatened. They're told you need to quit, quit preaching, stop talking about this Jesus. And so Peter and John come back to the assembly of the Christians there and report this and they pray. And here's what they say. You said, speaking to the Lord, through your Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father, David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Now, just hold on a minute. That's a quote from Psalm 2. 
Right? That's the Psalm 2 quotation right there. And so here they are saying, here's what Psalm 2 said by David. The kings of the earth and the nations are all taking their stand. And notice the imagery, assembling together against the Lord and his anointed. Now, watch how Peter applies that prophecy. For in fact, in this city, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. But now watch the twist. What is the Gog and Magog picture? To do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. The nations think, oh, we're rising up against the Lord and against his people. We're going to get him. And Peter prays this prayer and goes, this is exactly what David said was going to happen. And Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they have assembled against the Lord and his anointed. And he goes, but that's always what you said was going to happen. That that's what you do, Lord. You gather the enemies, they rise up against the people of God, and then the Lord acts and does something about it. We'll come back to this prayer in just a minute. But I want you to see that Peter has that same visual of the enemies, whoever they are, taking their stand, having their assembly against the Lord and his anointed. And here they're applying the picture in their day and time and going... Well, it's the Romans and the Jews. <laughs> He's equal opportunity. It's Herod and Pilate. It's all of them. They're all the Gog and Magog of the moment. Look at Daniel with me. The vision of the statue in Daniel 2. I want to zero in on a couple of points that are made in Daniel's prophecy. This is the statue that, of the, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar dreams. And here's Daniel's interpretation. As you looked... A stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces. I want you to hear the image. Remember, the statue is a picture of four nations. Remember how Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And it refers to the four nations after that. You have Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And here is Daniel's prophecy which says, so the stone strikes the fourth nation, the fourth empire at the feet. But notice it is not described as just destroying the Roman Empire. It's described as destroying all the nations. It is the, the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold are all together broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. Just wipe it out. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. All right. Let's do the two so what's. What was Ezekiel supposed to understand? And what are we supposed to get out of all of this? All right. For Ezekiel's day, this is actually a message of hope. We are in a massive section of hope uh, that God is giving of this, this restoration that's going to happen. 
And the Lord is making a promise that he was not going to turn his back on his people again. And it would have been one of the big questions. You're going to bring us back into the land and we're going to have this whole restoration. But when we sin, is there going to be this grand nation to blow us to bits again? And the Lord is saying, no, I'm going to be faithful for my people. I'm going to fight for my people. And so the Lord is saying he will gather the world powers against his people, but use that gathering to judge their wickedness. And I think that's fascinating to think about that that's exactly what you see in the first century that if you want to look at who Peter talked about if you looked at the physical Israel they come up against the Lord's people and persecute and God uses that and then judges them and destroys temple and city if you look at the Roman Empire they begin to persecute the people of God as well and God uses that and then destroys that empire as well And what I want us to zero in on for us is that message is still true today. Any wave of evil or wickedness that arises against the Lord's people is not a reason for us to fear. Jesus is on the throne and he destroys every wicked power and every wicked ruler And has promised that he has not turned his face away from his people, but will fight for them. So whatever world events happen, and it may be that we suffer persecutions, that hardships arise for the cause of Christ. We know we have victory because God is going to use that as a means of judging that world nation. If I had 30 more minutes, how many times do I say that in a lesson? Man, it's a lot. I wish I could preach an hour. Uh, I just, you sign me up for an hour long sermon. I will take it. You know how often we wonder about, well, what is going on in the world when you see these like rulers and nations and they rise up and they start going to war and all of that. And we're just outraged. And what about the innocent? And what about the people of God and all of that? And I want you to see that the Lord is saying something. That he allows this nation to rise up. It thinks it's doing it in its own mind. He says, but I am allowing you to rise up so that I can put you on the threshing floor and destroy you. And think in history how often that's happened. Think how many times the Lord has done that. Where they rise up and they're doing evil and they're harming people and they're killing people and it's awful and it's atrocities. And then the Lord goes, gone. You're gone. This is what the Gog and Magog prophecy is saying. Is that there's going to be wicked rulers and wicked nations and wicked people who are going to use their power to try to stand against the Lord's plan and try to destroy his people. And it's going to look like every time they're going to succeed. But they never will. Because the Lord is on the throne and he is using that moment as a means of judgment to destroy them and eradicate them from the earth. That's what Ezekiel's hearing. And that's the prophecy that stands for us. So what do we do? Let me end by going back to Peter's sermon. When he's talking to everyone there about what has just happened. And he says, they all assembled against you, Lord, but this was your plan. Notice what he then says. 
And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of the Holy Servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Notice that their prayer is not, I can't believe we're suffering. How can it be that we're going through such bad things? This shouldn't be right. We're the people of God. Notice that what they say. Give us boldness. Because we know what you're doing, Lord. You said this long ago. And of any nation that comes up, assembles itself against you and against your anointed, that that was your predetermined hand and you're going to destroy them. So what do we do when another Gog and Magog arises? And I've given you my definition, evil ruler, wicked nation, wicked power. What do we do when it rises up and starts harming the innocent, harming the people of God, standing against the Lord's plan? We pray for boldness. We keep speaking the word of God because we know the Lord has raised them up for destruction. The Lord will deal with those nations. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, what a powerful prophecy you have given to us to give us courage and hope. Because Lord, just as in those days it is today that we see nations and rulers who take their stand against you who have no regard for your ways, have no concern for your laws, who seem to be vile and wicked and intent on doing evil and killing the innocent and standing against your plans, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to remember that you are on the throne, that you have said that you will destroy all these world powers. You will destroy all the world nations that stand against you. We see it historically that you continue to put them under your feet. And Lord, we know you will continue to do so in the days ahead. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not be disturbed by current events or future world affairs, but to know that you hold the world in your hands, that you are in full control, and you are accomplishing your purposes through the movements that happen in this world. Forgive us for being terrified as if you are not ruling on the throne. And help us to be far more calm and courageous in knowing that as we see things happen around us, it is more opportunities for us to preach the good news about your rule, your kingship, your life, and how you are putting all the enemies under your feet one by one. Lord, forgive us for our failures. And may we be as these Christians were in the first century who boldly proclaimed the good news of your radical rule over all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Sing an invitation song. We invite you to come to what a wonderful ruler we have who rules over heaven and earth, subjugates the enemies under his feet. None can stand against him. All will be defeated. And Ezekiel has a wonderful vision and prophecy of that very truth. Uh, if that encourages you, I, I, and I hope it does, to live more faithfully for God, to let that be something that will direct your life in the days ahead. And I hope that if it's not been how you've been living your life and seeing King Jesus on the throne, that today would be the day to turn away from sin, submit your life to Jesus with all of your heart, and follow him faithfully 
because he is ruler over all, and we want you to belong to him. And we help you in any way, won't you come, while we stand and while we sing.